Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Biden administration's second summit for democracy that began today in Washington, D.C., with over 120 world leaders joining in by video, minus NATO members Hungary and Turkey, who were excluded, although India's Modi, who just jailed the leader of the opposition, did join in, as did Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, who was busy dismantling Israel's democratic checks and balances in order to stay out of jail. Joining us is Laura Thornton, Director and Senior Fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. Previously, she was Director of Global Programs at International IDEA, where she managed multiple teams across Europe focused on constitution building, parliamentary process, elections, gender and inclusion, political parties, and democratic assessment and analysis. We will discuss her article at the Hill, What Can Be Salvaged from Biden's Democracy Summit. Then we'll examine the lively hearing today before the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, chaired by Bernie Sanders, titled No Company is Above the Law, The Need to End Illegal Union Busting at Starbucks. Joining us to discuss the appearance of Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz, under threat of subpoena to answer why the National Labor Relations Board has filed over 80 complaints and over 500 unfair labor practice charges against Starbucks, is Lane Windham, Associate Director of Georgetown University's Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor and co-director of Will Empower, that's Women Innovating Labor Leadership. She's the author of Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s and the Roots of a New Economic Divide. Then finally, we'll examine the tragic fire at an immigrant detention facility in Juarez, Mexico, where guards refused to open gates, trapping people inside, resulting in 38 dead and 29 injured. Joining us is Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, a professor of policy and government at George Mason University, whose research focuses on Mexico-U.S. relations, organized crime, immigration, border security, and human trafficking. She was the principal investigator of a research grant to study organized crime and trafficking in persons in Central America and along Mexico's eastern migration routes, supported by the Department of State's Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons. The president of the Association for Borderland Studies, her latest book is Los Zetas Inc., Criminal Corporations, Energy and Civil War in Mexico, and she's the author of a study at Harvard's Belfast Center, Dismantling Migrant Smuggling Networks in the Americas. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community 
in post-truth America. And joining us now is Laurel Thornton, Director and Senior Fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. Previously, she was Director of Global Programs at International IDEA, where she managed multiple teams across Europe focused on constitution building, parliamentary process elections, gender and inclusion, political parties, and democracy assessment and analysis. And she has an article at The Hill, What Can Be Salvaged from Biden's Democracy Summit. Welcome to Background Briefing, Laura Thornton. It's a pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Laura. And suggesting that something needs to be salvaged is not exactly (laughs) a ringing endorsement of the summit. And this is the second summit on democracy that the Biden administration has held. What is the problem here? What do you think is the main problem with this summit and the previous one? I think there there were several, unfortunately. Um, they're they're sort of in different buckets of of issues. Like some are just related to the organization of it, which you know was extremely opaque and um, you know not particularly inclusive. Uh, it was very difficult finding out any information or even getting an agenda until you know a few days ago. So I think there was there's that aspect, which you know it's it's government. I can I can be more empathetic towards that. Uh, the the problem I had with the the, the conceptualization of it was uh, originally it was I mean it's always been stated it's a summit of you know for democracy, not of democracies, and yet. The way they organized it, it was it, it was based on governments and participants are heads of state, and I, I felt from the beginning that that was a mistake uh, because first of all you get into this very clumsy business of <laughs> I, I said recently in an interview being the bouncer at the nightclub of democracy <laughs> and determining who gets in and who gets out and and these decisions were very arbitrary uh, they weren't based on independent assessments of democracy health. Well, they in part were, but a lot of it, I'm sure, were other geopolitical considerations. Um, So that's one thing, is it just sets you up for inconsistencies. But more importantly is, uh, to me, democracy isn't a boundary thing. Uh, There are Democrats living in non-democracies, and there are autocrats living in democracies. And I think a more fruitful way to organize it would have been bringing together Democrats, lowercase d, uh, and instead of having, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu speak on behalf of Israeli democracy, you could then have, you know, an activist uh, from Israel speaking about democracy in Israel. And instead of having in the first summit Duterte speaking on behalf of Philippine democracy, you could have someone that might maybe from the political opposition. Uh, so I just felt, felt like it, 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 it hemmed them in in an unnecessary way. And as you mentioned, Netanyahu did speak this morning, virtually, of course, most of the participants are via video at the second Summit on Democracy organized by President Biden and the the bouncer shut out <laughs> both Hungary and uh, Turkey, members of NATO as it happens. Um, but right. nevertheless, you had Israel and of course, another backsliding US ally is India, the world's largest democracy. Sure. Uh, it's worth noting that Modi just expelled the leader of the opposition from the country's parliament. I know. And he's been convicted of defamation in Modi's home state of Gujarat for a 2019 campaign trail remark that he made, which is considered an insult 
to the prime minister. So you, there you have a, a democracy with... And they have non-democracies a, too. They had the Central um, African... Uh, they, they had the um, DRC invited, uh, mm-hmm. which is not even a, a, a failing democracy. It is, is, it's not a democracy. So yes, I, I hear your point. So, but what democracies are up against is that just a, a recent report from the Research Institute Varieties and Democracy finds mm-hmm. that 72% of the world's population now lives in autocracies, which is up from 46% in 2012. And Freedom House recently declared 2022 the 17th consecutive year of global democratic decline. So that's the reality, is it not, Laura? That is the reality. We have, and we've just seen such a, a decline. And it's so disappointing because, you know, when I entered this business, it was the opposite. It was so cheerful. <laughs> and we, we were, you know, it was the 90s. It was the heyday where countries were flipping towards democracy, not away from it. And, and here we find ourselves in this situation. And I think it's also, and I, you and I have discussed this before, it's, it's um, an ailment that's affecting even the oldest and wealthiest of democracy. So it's not, you know, there's been this perception of democracy assistance as helping, you know, less developed countries. Well, that's nonsense today. Um, you know, it's, it's not a matter of rich and poor or new or old. We're all, we're all struggling with this issue. Well, the United States has a deranged demagogue who's trying to make a comeback based on a monstrous lie that he won the last election. And he's got enormous amount of support in this country. We're not quite sure how much. He's the leading candidate for the opposition in terms of the 2024 presidential race. Trump is not insignificant. And surely that that resonates around the world. I mean, the rest of the world's going to be questioning the extent to which America is a democracy. And if if Trump were to be reelected, then that would be the end of American democracy. He's made it really clear that he is a wannabe mob boss and has an inordinate affection for autocrats. Well, right. I think that part of the reason Biden uh, declared this need for a summit was uh, as as a messaging exercise in many ways, an important one, in my view, uh, which was to say, hey, we're back (laughs) Um, after a very tumultuous Trump presidency. I think that was um, the subtext of the whole Summit for Democracy, which is, no, 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 we still believe in democracy. Trust us. We're back now. Don't worry. Don't fret. Here we are. (laughs) I mean, I think that was a big point of it. But you're absolutely right. It doesn't mean, you know, that we're not going to slip back again. And you point to Trump and and more importantly, his supporters, like this groundswell of, of, of the public that wants this type of leader. And that is something we're seeing around the world. It's, it's not, you know, the coups of our grandparents necessarily, or our parents. It's, it's people electing illiberal, undemocratic leaders through the ballot box. And I, I think that is the most strange and alarming part of this whole backsliding. I mean, you can't help uh, you know, you can't really fight against a military coup in a lot of ways, but this is something we're choosing. <laughs> uh, and that's where we really have to struggle to figure out how to fix that problem, because the problem is us, right? Uh, and I don't have magical answers for that. 
So, Laura, since you've worked for 25 years in Asia and the former Soviet Union for democracy promotion organisations, how do you see the asymmetry between passive democracies and active autocracies? You know, you've got, for example, as you point out in your article, Orban, the Hungarian dictator, showing up at CPAC and being a hero of, of the American right hosted by Tucker Carlson on his show for a whole week that he recorded mm. in Budapest. And then you've got Stephen Bannon trying to organize a kind of a international consortium of backsliders, etc., and tying himself in with far-right movements in Italy, the UK, France, Brazil, and Hungary. So is that a part of the problem? That, To put it simplistically, the bad guys are motivated <laughs> and the good guys are passive. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. I mean, and that was, you know, again, one of the positive sides I, I point to about the summit was that recognition, hey, hey, guys, wake up, we need to stick together here. <laughs> because our enemies uh, and illiberal anti-democratic forces are absolutely motivated. And uh, as you said, rightly, they're exchanging tactics and, and, and best practice and importantly, financial support, informational operational support. So they really are, you know, coordinating and we need to demonstrate the same level of enthusiasm. We have been, yeah, I think sort of asleep at the wheel here. And or we've focused very much just on, you know, bilateral support to help boost a democracy in a specific place rather than looking at it holistically uh, the way authoritarians seem to be doing it. It's it's a global challenge. It's not an individual national challenge. And um, yeah, I, we need to step up our game. And, and, and I would I would say do something similar get together, have these meetings and retreats to dig deep on tactics, share best practices, talk about what's working and what's not. And we have a lot to learn in the United States, certainly about about many aspects of democracy where we're falling short. We can learn from others and we have things to share, things that we do relatively well that we can share with others, but we can't go it alone. Um, and otherwise we're, we're going to be in deep trouble because they are mobilized. So what they, then do you make, uh, Laura Thornton, of President Biden's pledge today at the Second Summit for Democracy, announcing $690 million in new funding for democracy programs around the world? I mean, I think this is great, and I, I, mean, I do have always been extremely supportive of the United States' uh, financial commitment to this issue. The only problem is that it's also here, and so I don't, again, I don't look at this as, as something to give to only support to developing countries. And right now, the way the U.S. aid is structured, it only goes to development recipient countries. But that is not the only place where democracy is at risk. And I think we need to adapt a more global approach. And I would like to hear about more investments in democracy here in the United States, as well as support and resources towards creating those kind of forums where we can come together and, and, and work together. Uh, look, I think it's incredibly important that we're increasing our aid uh, and democracy assistance programs. I think that's fabulous. I hope they very much look at 
Democrats in non-democracies, because that's where real change happens. Those people fighting in those tough places, uh, that's how, how countries become democratic. It's not from outside forces, it's from within. So the most we can do to support those Democrats as well, I think it's a very welcome announcement. So the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman said about this uh, second summit, quote, Despite the many problems at home, the U.S. is hosting another summit for democracy in the name of promoting democracy, an event that blatantly draws an ideological line between countries and creates divisions in the world. It would seem to me that uh, actually the U.S., its best argument about China, instead of beating up on TikTok, is to appeal to the democratic aspirations within China itself. It's a one-party surveillance state. And we saw a little while ago when, due to the COVID lockdown, a building caught on fire and people were trapped, massive uh, response amongst the Chinese oh, people. Yeah. And it was really heartening to see that the Chinese people, in spite of this repressive surveillance state, rose up. So that's where I wonder whether we're missing the boat here. Instead of massive military confrontation with China, which which is a dangerous prospect of a, of a in not just a new cold war but even a nuclear war whereas uh, investing in democracy is chump changed compared to the defense budget uh, i yeah i agree a hundred percent and and as i as i said before this i don't like these geographic divides either i because of exactly what you said we would be wonderful if the summit had a space for for Chinese democratic activists. I think they did better in this summit on the agenda. I saw that they were bringing in some of these activists from tough places, but those investments, you're absolutely right, they go a long way. It's extremely difficult work, but there are there are efforts and organizations that carry out this painstaking work, even if it's slowly trying to infiltrate messages into North Korea or other almost seemingly impossible places, we have to do the best we can to try to provide that support because that's that's exactly where it's going to happen. And we do we did see the cracks in China around COVID where people actually rose up and, 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 and it changed behavior. Um, so that was and it is worth, obviously, every penny of investment and, and can have lasting uh, change. So I, I agree with you 100% on that. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Laura Thornton, when I mentioned earlier that 72% of the world's population now lived in autocracies, up from 46% in 2012, and Freedom House declared recently that 2022 was the 17th consecutive year of global democratic decline. What's also emerging now, which I find quite frightening, is the possibility of an alliance between Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Iran, and China. Now, three of those countries, of course, are massive oil producers. So you have an alliance that could have the ability to blackmail the world through the energy tap by turning on and turning off and jacking up the price of energy, which the Saudis and uh, the Russians in OPEC Plus did recently in spite of Biden's pleas to do the opposite. So is that something that could emerge? In other words, are we really facing the possibility of a kind of, you know, we remembered Bush's axis of evil. Well, this mm. is the <laughs> axis of, of autocracy. 
Yeah, and I I think we've learned um, if 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 the war in Ukraine didn't teach us about the the consequences of linking our <laughs> economies and particularly our energy sector to autocracies, I don't know why we haven't really internalized that lesson. Um, I was very disappointed when Germany is you know making trade deals with Huawei. I it, this is it's like have we learned nothing? Um, I, I know that it's really difficult. I'm not naive. It's 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 impossible to completely untangle our economies, particularly from a country like China. It's it's, it's impossible. However, uh, can we at least try to do that on things that affect our national security, uh, like technology? Can we at least not um, use Chinese companies to put in our underwater cables for telecommunications? I mean, I think that we we need to wake up to that um, reality uh, that we, as you rightly said, can be in a, a position of blackmail. I hope it also can, it doesn't seem, it seems to have done this a little more in Europe than here, but kickstart our uh, move towards green energy uh, yesterday, please, because that is, if any incentive to move toward, towards less reliance on oil and gas, this is the time, right? Yeah. Um, but again, it goes back to what you were saying before, though, is that ultimately what we want is those countries not to be autocracies. And the way that happens is through that change within. So we have to be, it is a matter of our, it's an existential threat. So why aren't we investing more in supporting those Democrats? But just in closing, we, we don't have a lot of ability to influence China or Russia or Iran, for that matter. And, and we've seen how the Iranian regime cracked down on these brave women who rose up. I know. Um, so, but we do have influence over Saudi Arabia. And for the life of me, I don't understand why. One, we, we, don't, use we don't use that influence and recognize <laughs> who Mohammed bin Salman really is and where his, his sympathies lie. And he's sitting on all that oil, which should stay in the ground to save the planet. But we also do see what I think in terms, to end on a positive note, is uh, people power, man. I, I, I mean, I am looking at Israel, uh, the country I used to live in, Georgia. There was a very repressive NGO law that they were trying to pass, and the people just wouldn't have it. And of course, in Iran, that that it was it's tragic and didn't result in any big change yet but those movements are what's going to make the difference here and so i'm just you know in awe of these of these brave people who are who are really fighting in in difficult times and these are the people we should be supporting so i thank you for joining us exactly. uh, laura oh thanks for having me always a pleasure and again, I've been speaking with Laura Thornton, who's Director and Senior Fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy, the German Marshall Fund. Previously, she was Director of Global Programs at International IDEA, where she managed multiple teams across Europe focused on constitutional building, parliamentary process, elections, gender and inclusion, political parties, and democracy assessment and analysis. And she has an article at The Hill, What Can Be Salvaged from Biden's Democracy Summit? We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the lively hearing today before the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, chaired by Bernie Sanders, titled No Company is Above the Law, The Need to End Illegal Union Busting at Starbucks.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lane Windham, who is the Associate Director of Georgetown University's Kilmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor, and the co-director of Will Empower, that's Women Innovating Labor Leadership. She's the author of Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s, and the Roots of a New Economic Divide. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lane Windham. I'm happy to be here with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Lane. And there was a very lively hearing today before the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, chaired by Bernie Sanders. And the title of the hearing was No Company is Above the Law, The Need to End Illegal Union Busting at Starbucks. And the CEO, or the former CEO, we just quit about a week ago, of Starbucks showed up under threat of a subpoena. So Bernie Sanders started out the hearing by saying Starbucks has, quote, waged the most aggressive and illegal union-busting campaign in the modern history of our country over the past 18 months. That union-busting campaign has been led by Howard Schultz, who was with us this morning only under the threat of subpoena. So it started out in a pretty combative way, what did you make of it? Uh, you know, I, I think it's very interesting that Howard Schultz just insists, you know, that he's not a union buster and that he hasn't broken the law. I think that um, very few people hearing those words are going to believe him. I don't think it's, I don't think that it's credible. I don't think it's believable. And it, you know, goes against people's gut instinct about what's happening at Starbucks. I think that the public is strongly behind these workers who are organizing uh, and that he is really hurting his legacy uh, at at Starbucks by, um, you know, making these claims that just are not believable. Well, the National Labor Relations Board, the NLB, have basically accused Howard Schultz, uh, of promising to improve pay by benefits if they choose not to unionize. And I think there's hundreds of complaints against him that lodged by the NRLB. So his record is pretty clear, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Starbucks is paying the non-union stores uh, more, you know, and then there have been hundreds of charges in which the company has basically threatened workers, intimidated workers, etc. And, you know, not only that, but that first store, those workers voted for that union. It's been over uh, 430 days since they voted for that union originally, and they still don't have a contract. Uh, and the company is required by law to bargain in good faith. And that sure doesn't sound like good faith bargaining to me. Does it sound like good faith bargaining to you? <laughs> well, the judge in this case, Ministry of Law judge, ruled that Starbucks had committed egregious and widespread violations and ordered the company to rehire seven union supporters who lost their jobs. And the judge uh, said that Starbucks showed, quote, a general disregard for employees' fundamental rights. That's right, you know, and uh, and then for Howard Schultz to sit in front of Congress and to insist 
that he uh, is not a union buster, that he is following the law. Um, it's just, it's pretty egregious. So what do you think will come out of this hearing then? I mean, he's very proud of the fact that he came from a very poor working class family living in subsidized housing. And then he built this company, worked hard and, you know, the Horatio Alger story. And he earned all this money because Bernie kept referring to him as a as a billionaire. And he apparently did, I mean, he clearly didn't like being referred to as a billionaire, but then admitted that he is worth billions, but that he earned it. Yeah. So he is solidifying his place and history as as a union buster. And I'm going to, you know, the CEO. Uh, CEOs in the United States, there's been a history of, uh, of company executives who brashly violated their, their workers' rights. Um, you know, for example, Sewell Avery of the Montgomery Ward Company is famous because in 1944, he refused to honor his workers' rights. And uh, federal troops actually carried him out of his office while he was still sitting in his office chair. There's a famous photo of this. And his legacy, you know, that is his legacy, is that he wouldn't honor workers' rights. And that is what Howard Schultz is doing. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders didn't carry him out in his office chair. But uh, the what happened today uh, in front of, of uh, members of Congress is that, um, you know, Howard Schultz, was held to account for how he has treated workers. The public could see that. And he, his legacy is going to be uh, that of somebody who is strongly against worker rights. But of course, this didn't stop Senator Rand Paul, who opened his remarks at Wednesday's hearing by quoting the novelist Anne Rand, saying that, quote, the ingratitude man has for the entrepreneur. <laughs> so I guess the libertarian Rand Paul sees uh, the billionaire Howard Schultz as some kind of a martyr who's being beaten up because he's a successful entrepreneur as opposed to a greedy guy who doesn't have respect for his employees. You know, Ian, I think one of the things we learned during the pandemic is all of us watched as all these essential workers, people who deliver packages, people who serve us our coffee, people who ring us up, we saw they do an enormous service to keep all of our lives going, to keep all of us running. They often work dangerous jobs to do that. It was certainly more dangerous during the pandemic. And I think most Americans recognize uh, that working people are working hard too and deserve far better, deserve better paid, deserve better treatment than what they are getting. And so I have no doubt that Howard Schultz is a hard worker, but so are the people who work in his Starbucks uh, and um, you know they deserve fair treatment. And I, I think that the way that, that it's clear, the way that he has been treating them by violating their rights and, and uh, sort of snubbing his nose at the National Labor Relations Board, um, you know, is, is, is not fair treatment. And that is not the values that most Americans have about this economy and working people. 
So just to repeat, the National Labor Relations Board has filed over 80 complaints against Starbucks for violating federal labor law, and there have been over 500 unfair labor practice charges lodged against the company. So uh, another little (laughs) highlight of today's hearing was a squabble between the chair, Bernie Sanders, and this first-term Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma, who in a previous hearings got into a, a really nasty spat with a Teamster union organizer. But this time he, he accused Sanders, because Bernie was referring to Schultz as a billionaire, he refused, accused Bernie Sanders of being worth $8 million and that therefore he shouldn't be criticizing wealthy people. And Bernie says, well, that's news to me. And then then Mullen said, well, that's a matter of public record. And Bernie said, no, you're probably looking at some phony right-wing internet stuff. It ain't true. <laughs> so, uh, so that was at least a little entertaining. But you do wonder about the kind of quality of the, some of these people that have been in the Congress, you know, with this Mark Wayne Mullen being one of these MAGA types. And, of course, the, yeah. the horrible congressman down in... Uh, Nashville, where all those kids were slaughtered, yeah. sending out Christmas cards with him and his family holding assault, assault rifles, along with lying about his resume. There's some real, you know, bottom of the barrel types uh, in the U.S. House and Senate. I'm afraid. So just to and just you know, to, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and then we have you know so many of our states, like in Florida, where they're trying to curb. Uh, the ability for students to learn critical thinking, right? This is what we need is we need more people who have critical thinking skills and can, can think, Oh, you know, what these, uh, what people are coming up with off of the internet is, is not reality. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, I wanted to just segue in the last couple of minutes though, Lane to what seems like good news on the labor front, which it doesn't often happen that Michigan, under Governor Whitmer, she just signed a few few days ago, the overturning of a Republican right-to-work law in the state of Michigan, uh, which I think has been there since 2012. And these right-to-work laws, which are common in the South, but not so much common in in the industrial North, but they were in place in Michigan, are a union-busting tactic. I mean, the idea is that the Republicans... And their backers argue that union members shouldn't have to pay dues at the same time getting benefits from union contracts. And they make these arguments in the name of freedom, that people should be free to choose and they shouldn't have to be forced to pay union dues, even though they get the benefits of the union contract. So, you know, it's it's basically an excuse for union busting, which right. is what the intention is, to defund the unions and in turn defund the Democratic Party who gets money from the union. So that's their strategy. So the fact that, that that because people in Michigan voted against some of the most radical Republican candidates who were election deniers and managed to change the House and Senate in the state along with the governorship, who was already in the hands of Gretchen Whitmer, a Democrat, there's some good news there, right? And that's that's the lesson, isn't it? to win elections and to change these horrible ALEC-type laws that are put through with Koch brothers' money. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, the 
percentage of the workers in Michigan who had a union prior to that uh, right to work law going into effect in 2012 was about 18 percent. And the percentage of the workforce with the union in Michigan now, and I think in 2021 was you know right around 13 percent. I think it went up just a touch last year. Um, and so it it's had a real effect, right? It's it has uh, lowered the percentage of people who have a union. When uh, fewer people have a union, that means fewer are engaged uh, in their communities through unions, but they're also fewer engaged in politics through unions. And so that is definitely part of the way when we you know think back on 2016 and how. Um, the that blue wall crumbled uh, uh, in Michigan and Wisconsin and elsewhere. Um, you know the the fact that uh, union membership itself had been attacked through this right to work law was very important. Um, so what we see now is that um, the the that the public uh, is more supportive of unions than it has been. Uh, in decades, 71% of people say they approve of unions. Young people are the most likely to say that they approve of unions. And so, you know, I think that what we'll see in Michigan is that uh, that this will help uh, bolster worker organizations, bolster unions, and help build worker power. Well, Elaine Windham, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Terrific. Well, it's always good to chat with you. Well, thank you, Lane. And again, I've been speaking with Lane Wyndham, who's the Associate Director of Georgetown University's Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor and the co-director of WILL, W-I-L-L, Empower. That's Women Innovating Labor Leadership. And she's the author of Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s and the Roots of a New Economic Divide. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the tragic fire at an immigrant detention facility in Juarez, Mexico, where guards refused to open gates, trapping people inside, resulting in 38 dead and 29 injured. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, who is a professor of policy and government at George Mason University, whose research focuses on Mexico-U.S. relations, organized crime, immigration, border security, and human trafficking. She was the principal investigator of a research grant to study organized crime and trafficking in persons in Central America and along Mexico's eastern immigration routes, supported by the Department of State's Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons. She's the president of the Association of Borderland Studies, and her latest book is Los Zetas, Inc., Criminal Corporations, Energy, and Civil War in Mexico, and she's the author of a study at Harvard's Belfast Center, Dismantling Migrant Smuggling Networks in the Americas. Welcome to Background Briefing, Guadalupe Correa Cabrera. Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to be with you and your audience. Well, thanks uh, again for joining us, Guadalupe. And 
A horrible tragedy took place in Juarez, just across the border uh, from El Paso. 36 people died, 29 were injured in a fire inside a detention center in Juarez. And some of the video is quite disturbing. It indicates a fire was inside the facility uh, where people were locked in and guards on the other side of the locked gates didn't open the gates to let people escape. So what do you make of this? What What's the reaction in Mexico? Because obviously people have seen uh, the, the video of the guards standing on the other side of the locked door while desperate people are, uh, you know, breathing smoke and about to be burned alive. Right. Well, this is exactly a, a, a human tragedy. It's a tragedy. Um, this reflects, uh, I mean, a, a, a this reflects the broken immigration system uh, in both in Mexico and the United States, but also it reflects that institutions that deal with immigration in Mexico need a total uh, restructuring. People in Mexico, Mexican citizens, the majority of Mexican citizens are extremely surprised and are very upset of what happened. Um, what happened shouldn't have happened. Uh, it's, there's no, there's no, um, I mean, there's no way to justify what the guards and the system, because it's not about only the guards who were there. We need to see how the chain of command operates. It's not easy just to, uh, to keep people inside who were protesting. It doesn't matter if they were protesting with fire. The guards were there, according to the video. They just decided to leave the place, to leave the migrants to burn themselves to death. And this is what happened. This reflects a situation that is not new. It's a situation that has not been addressed with regards to the operation of the Institute of National Immigration uh, of Mexico. Uh, There are a number of reports of abuses, extortion, and um, a number of of crimes committed even by personnel of the National Institute of Immigration of Mexico uh, throughout the years. Uh, There were a lot of reports, uh, criticisms of people that sympathize with the current administration during the past administration have been criticized this. And today we see a tragedy of magnitude that we could not imagine in the past. And this is because um, also, the United States and Mexico have collaborated uh, to just deter immigration without providing uh, legal path- legal immigration pathways, without dealing with this um, in, a, in, a, in a serious way, addressing the root causes of immigration. The problem with regards to undocumented immigrants, asylum seekers, is not just the problem of Mexico. Of course, this time it has to do with Mexican institutions with a failed uh, immigration Mexican system, a broken um, immigration system in Mexico. But the immigration system is also broken in the United States, and the United States has pressured Mexico to close, close its borders to migration, to regular migration. To, and so migration is done irregularly with the help of smugglers, and uh, also it, it uh, man- maintains people in detention centers that are very crowded without the the infrastructure that is needed to keep people safe, 
And also, there are no resources to provide services, to provide safety to those who want to stay to wait for their asylum case to be processed or for their uh, situation to be better uh, because the situation with the place that they are is unbearable. It's, it's, it's a tragedy. We're not talking about a shelter, as Mexican authorities are saying. We're talking about a detention center that have the whole system of detention centers in Mexico, major problems. And this is not about only um, facilities or infrastructure. It has to do also with, with, the, with the personnel, with matters of corruption, with the chain of command, as I said. This was a major tragedy. It was a major abuse of human rights that ended with the lives of thousands of people. So this National Migration Institute, is it under the Attorney General? What is the chain of command? Yes, uh, it's under the uh, Secretariat, uh, Secretaría de Gobernación, which, um, which right. uh, yeah, Secretaría de Gobernación, SEGOP, in, in Mexico. It's not equivalent to the, um, uh, I mean, to the, it, it has some, some of the features of DHS and NAJ. I mean, it's it's a, it's it's its own thing, and it also deals with human rights. You know, it's also in charge of for uh, overseeing uh, certain aspects of human rights. So it's a it's a dif- it's, it's a different um, ministry. It's not comparable to the exactly to U.S. Uh, the U.S. government structure. So, um, but it's not only. I mean, it's under Secretaría de Gobernación. But the problem here is that the authorities of Mexico are trying to evade responsibility. And, you know, all the responsibility should be only in the head of the National Institute of Immigration or under the, secret- the secretary um, that is in charge of this, of this ministry. But in reality, this has also to do with the agreement that Mexico has had with the United States. The United States has been able to keep migrants in Mexico. Not now through MPP, the Migration Protection Protocols now, but at the same time, the expulsions are very numerous and there are no legal pathways. Jobs are available in the United States. The situation in certain countries of the world, not only Central America, but also uh, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, the Middle East, the, I mean, some countries of, uh, of Eurasia, uh, Russia, Ukraine. We see people from everywhere in the world trying to make it to the United States and applying for asylum. So this is, this is much more complex. It also has to do with failed policies, failed cooperation between the United States with regards to immigration issues. Well, according to the Mexican Attorney General's office, the dead include 28 Guatemalans, 13 Hondurans, 12 Salvadorans, 12 Venezuelans, and one citizen from Colombia mm-hmm. and Ecuador. And apparently... In these border cities like Tijuana and Juarez, there are all kinds of refugees from these countries trying to get into the United States who literally are begging for food and jobs, and they get picked up by the National Immigration Institute uh, authorities. That's how they end up in these detention centers. So this is a massive human rights problem. And there have been, just recently there were there was an attempt by a lot of Venezuelan refugees to storm the bridge across into El Paso, which was, you know, hundreds of people 
try exactly. and force away, and they were stopped by U.S. authorities. So it's not like we can deny this is going on. We we know this is going on, but who who is taking care of these people? And López Obrador, Mexican president, he blamed the fire on the migrants, and many are arguing, though, no, that that's not entirely the case because, you know, the migrants are stripped of everything, including their shoelaces, so they don't exactly have matches. So the president of Mexico doesn't seem to be particularly sympathetic to the plight of these people who are marooned and stranded because the U.S. won't let these people in and Mexico's stuck with people that they don't want. Yes, we we need to we need to do further investigations. It's important that we wait also for 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 further investigation. But it does not matter, um, you know, what started the fire or not. The reality is that uh, the migrants were kept locked in a detention center where there was fire, and the guards saw that happening. It doesn't matter who started the fire if the start, the fire was started or not by the migrants. The protocols and the violation of rights uh, that ended up in a tragedy is what, what really happened here. This is the, there's no question that, that the Mexican government is, is responsible in this particular case. And, of course, this is, this, is, this is a tragedy and the responsibility is within the National Institute of Immigration. But what I am trying to explain, too, is that this is not going to be the only tragedy that happened. And we know that events like this, as you already mentioned, are going to be happening and are going to put uh, in very difficult situations the Mexican and the U.S. law enforcement agencies or agents in partic- at particular moments, in particular time, because of this crisis of human beings. It's a tri- it's, 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 this is tragic. The, the jobs exist, and this is where things have to change. Comprehensive immigration reform is extremely important to fix an immigration system in the United States that is broken. And Mexico needs to reform completely its, 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 its agency to deal with immigration. Also, at all, also, Mexico's immigration system is broken, and the collaboration is not working. Um, in the United States, there are jobs. There's availability of jobs. But people do not have the capacity to get into the United States regularly and pay the fees to get in um, legally. This is, this is for sure. The, the numbers are not much. They will never get a visa. So they prefer to pay between 6000 or $20,000 to a smuggler and go through a very dangerous journey to get those jobs that are available. How to deal with that? The system needs to be addressed, fixed comprehensively. And also the root causes of irregular and um, undocumented immigration need to be addressed properly. And the collaboration needs to be fixed. It's not just, it doesn't have to be just like stopping the migrants from trying to enter because this is what is happening. Jobs are available and smugglers are also providing their services. People pay a lot of money to be there. That's why they protest to be deported after so much resources they have spent. Sometimes they, um, they leave their homes and they, they, they pay with, with what they have. So that is, it's, it's understandable why they protest. What happened is, in, in any form, just, uh, I mean, it cannot be justified. And the response of the Mexican president was completely inappropriate because he kind of put the responsibility to some extent in the migrants. And 
the right of, I mean, we, we all have a right to protest, even if we are citizens or not of a country. Because if we're mistreated, if we're not treated rightly, if we're kept in a place uh, that's overflowed with people, we, are, we, we have the right to protest. And what happened was a tragedy, but reflects many other things about our systems, about our failures to further um, comprehensive immigration reform, because politics sometimes get in the middle. Because sometimes politicians, for politicians, their careers, their elections are more important. And an anti-immigrant, um, sometimes an anti-immigrant discourse in the United States is very uh, profitable in electoral terms. Well, you know, if these desperate people who have been stopped at the border after spending their life savings on smugglers, and then they have to beg on the streets of Juarez for food and, you know, wipe the windscreens of cars and stuff like that, and then they get picked up by the immigration authorities, and then they get stuffed into a detention cell, you know, crammed in, and then the guards leave them to burn to die, and then the president is rather callous about the whole thing. But we've known about this for the longest time, and you studied um, the connections with organized mm -hmm. crime and smuggling. We know that as migrants crossing Mexico from the south, many have died at the hands of organized crime. Many have been yeah. riding on top of cargo trains, and they've uh, fallen off and lost limbs. Others have been packed into overcrowded trailers, lacking ventilation. And now, apparently, according to the government of Panama, they said last week that there are 50,000 migrants have entered Panama from Colombia through this very dangerous jungle path known as the Darien Gap. And this has happened in the last two months of 2023. And that's five times more than the same period last year. So there are 50,000 migrants in the pipeline heading north as we speak. And what's going to happen to them? Well... That's that's a that's a big problem. There are no facilities, there are no resources uh, to to provide them with with uh, I mean with the possibility to to stay for for a short time. Uh, but the, the the fact is that there are jobs in the United States that those who are able to make it on the other side are able to get a job, and the jobs are available. The system needs to be fixed. And Mexico and the United States should collaborate to make this functional. Um, it's not about opening the borders. It's about figuring out a system to address this in an organized way for economic migrants not to be having to apply for asylum as the last resort, but for them to be able to apply legally to pay their fees, to be registered, to leave and, 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 and arrive and leave when they have to. And that is all considered in the proposals for comprehensive immigration reform. Unfortunately, the politicians in the United States in particular have not helped in that. Corruption in Mexico is also something important. So that contributes to the tragedy of the migrants. That contributes to, uh, to the kidnapping of migrants, to the murder of migrants, to the, to, the, to the very dangerous journey. And so this is very, very complex, but that has to do with incentives. That has to do with the fact that those who are able to enter uh, get paid very low salaries and they make America great. They are an opportunity for, for, the, for the country. And they, they represent an opportunity because, they, because jobs are available. That's the thing. 
if, if jobs weren't available, if they didn't know that if they, with all the, the hardships that they go through in the journey, if, if, they, if, they, if they, I mean, if they think that they couldn't get a job, they wouldn't be coming here. And this is why we see so many people. The conditions are terrible, but it's not about only push factors. The pull factor, the main pull factor, and maybe the main factor that determines why, how many people come to the border is because of the, of, I mean, of, of, of uh, job demand, labor demand. And this is something that not many media outlets say. It's only, they only, they focus exclusively sometimes on push factors, as if, you know, accepting the migrants is a humanitarian issue. No, it's an economic opportunity. And that opportunity needs to be addressed in an organized way, in, in an ordered way. But unfortunately, as much as effort and diagnosis and reports have been created, the United States knows the recipe for that. But the politicians, because of their, as I said, because of their um, incentives and because of elections, have not been able to, um, to get it, I mean, to compromise to solve the situation. And also the Mexican government has not done a good job in this regard. The sending countries, and it's not only a matter of Mexico, the sending countries benefit a lot from their remittances. So they're not going to be addressed, they're not going to be addressing the internal um, situation. It's, it's, it's great, it's free for them to have the remittances and they don't have to deal with more people. It's better for them that people leave than to deal with their own responsibility. Well, Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It was a pleasure to be with you and your audience. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, who is a professor of policy and government at George Mason University. His research focuses on Mexico-U.S. relations, organized crime, immigration, border security, and human trafficking. She was the principal investigator of a research grant to study organized crime and trafficking in persons in Central America and along Mexico's eastern migration routes, supported by the Department of State's Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons. And she's the president of the Association of Borderland Studies. And her latest book is Los Zetas, Inc., Criminal Corporations, Energy, and Civil War in Mexico. And she's the author of a study at Harvard's Belfast Center, Dismantling Migrant Smuggling Networks in the Americas. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.